0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories. The term comic book is one of the great misnomers in entertainment, but they're not books and they're not comical. This American industry has produced cultural icons that are recognized in every corner of the globe. By taking a look inside the pages of the comic book superhero, we can learn much about ourselves and the world around us. Here's Greg Hengler.
1: Once there was a world without comic books. Like jazz and like baseball, like so much that is distinctly American, the comic book is born in the country's margins. In the early 1930s, two immigrant entrepreneurs, Harry Donnenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, run a small publishing company putting out pulp magazines. Here's comic writers Mark Wade and Gerard Jones.
2: Some people did jail time for these magazines in the 30s. So they were, they were pornography by the standards of the 30s. Harry Donenfeld almost went to jail. He had to talk one of his employees into taking the rap for him in exchange for a job for life. The handwriting came
3: on the wall about 37, 38. He thought, you know what, maybe Spicy Pulps is not where I want to be if the law is going to be breathing down my neck.
1: For a country in the midst of the Great Depression, newspaper comic strips or funnies are a popular, cheap and humorous amusement. Comic books are simply reprints of newspaper comic strips. In 1935, a 45-year-old former U.S. Army major and prolific pulp magazine writer named Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson is inspired to put out his own comic book. But unlike the others, he will feature original comic material created by freelance cartoonists.
3: January 11, 1935, you go to the newsstands in New York,
2: and you find on them Fun Comics Number 1, the very first DC comic. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had a sense not just that this is filler, but that new material might find its own audience.
1: The Major needs business partners, and Donenfeld and Leibowitz need less racy material to publish. In 1937, the three men enter into a partnership, and Detective Comics, the comic that would give DC its name, hits the stands. As the title promises... Detective Comics differs from comic strips and books. Humor is giving way to crime-fighting. At the same time in Cleveland, Ohio, two high school students, sons of Jewish immigrants, are escaping the struggles of their everyday lives into a fantasy world of their own making. Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster are shy and unpopular in school. Unsuccessful with the girls, and insecure about their bespectacled appearance and physical abilities. They lose themselves in science fiction magazines and nurture fantasies of power and success. Here's comic illustrator Arlen Schumer and comic book historian Danny Fingeroth.
0: I think it was the year 1934. It was a hot summer night and Jerry Siegel, the teenage writer, couldn't sleep at night. He was tossing and turning.
4: He had this dream in which he kept having flashes of a character that would become a combination of Samson and Hercules and a dozen other characters from the Bible to the comic strips to the serials in the movie theater.
0: He wrote it all down. The very next morning, he runs over to his friend Joe Schuster's house, his artist friend and he tells him the story of this superheroic character. And Joe Schuster starts making the original drawings.
2: Joe Schuster was a bodybuilder and fascinated with uh, bodybuilding magazines, fascinated with images of acrobats, the tights, the cape, You can see all that in Superman's costume. Jerry Siegel's father died in a robbery when Jerry was a teenager. And the perpetrators were never caught. So he had this very immediate visceral reason to hate crime. And I think Superman for him was a character who could, in a fantasy way, prevent things like that from happening.
1: Here's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster.
5: I was quite meek, and I was quite mild, and I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great if I was a mighty person, and his girls didn't know that this clod here is really uh, somebody special.
6: I was very small, and I was always pushed around by bullies and so forth. So. That was one of my dreams. I took courses in bodybuilding and weightlifting. I don't know if it helped, but I made an effort.
1: In the artistic world of the 1930s, comic books rank just above the adult magazine industry.
7: Sunday's the one day when I love to see the
1: Comic strip creators are very rich celebrities. Guys like Chester Gould with Dick Tracy, Al Cap with Little Abner, Alex Raymond with Flash Gordon, and Hal Foster with Tarzan. Siegel and Schuster see this as a golden opportunity. They submit their Superman creation to newspaper editors across the country, and in turn, every one of them promptly rejects it, some more than once. Here's DC artist Neil Adams. Nobody liked it.
7: This was an anomaly. This was, I mean, nobody else was doing it. Everybody was doing cowboys, detective, science fiction type things. These two 17-year-old Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, created a genre.
1: Meanwhile, Donnenfeld and Leibowitz are about to launch a new DC comic book title they call Action Comics. Having all but given up hope of ever seeing Superman in newspaper comics, Siegel and Schuster, now both 23, sell the rights of Superman to DC for $130 and go to work. June 1938, the first issue of Action Comics is born, and there he is, on the cover, the red-caped crusader in blue tights with a signature S emblazoned on his chest, holding an automobile above his head. That 10-cent comic book sold for over 3.2 million in 2014. Leibowitz cautiously has 200,000 copies printed, but receives dealers' requests for more. He keeps the print run small until the fourth issue sells out. By the seventh issue, Action Comics is selling over half a million copies each month.
0: And when we come back, more of this remarkable American story. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our story of comic superheroes. In
1: 1939, Siegel and Schuster realize their dream when the two are asked to create a daily Superman newspaper comic strip and a color page for Sunday. Then DC did something unprecedented. They launched Superman the first comic book title devoted entirely to a single character. Here's the Jimi Hendrix of comic book art, Jim Steranko.
6: The elements that Siegel and Schuster adopted into this comic strip set the pace for virtually everything to come afterward. Superman.
7: The kids in America. They went ape. Within two years, these guys had changed the world. The comic book publishers, every one of them said, make superheroes.
1: Superman represents President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal as imagined by those who champion it, without flaws or negative consequences. The young Jewish creators also define their superhero from another planet by what is happening In Nazi Germany. Here's the former president and publisher at DC Comics, Paul Levitz and Jerry Siegel.
5: These are families that have come over
3: from Europe and they're watching whoever they left behind disappear in a very scary fashion. So the characters live for them
5: nazism was uh, you know rising up and uh, a lot of innocent people were being uh, killed countries were being invaded a lot of innocents uh, slaughtered and i felt that the world desperately needed a crusader if only a fictional one
1: here's comic
8: writer Dwayne mcduffie superman was about the immigrant experience in a very very powerful way it's the kid from the old country who brings the best values from the old country, in this case, the old planet, to America, adds it to the pot, and accepts the best part of America. It's a really powerful set of ideas that was really important to people in the 30s and 40s.
7: The newsstand dealers couldn't get enough. Within three issues, they were up to a million copies. It was a phenomenon.
3: There was never anything like it. There was that supermania that hit in 1939 and 1940, We have not seen anything like it in American pop culture since. Beatlemania was not that big.
9: Over 100,000 boys and girls in the United
3: States and Canada
9: are members of the Superman of America. One mother says...
10: I should like to thank the publishers of Action Comics magazine for including a health page in every issue.
11: Billy has been eating his cereal and drinking his milk regularly since Superman told him to
7: do
3: so. He can do about anything, can't he? Everywhere you go, Superman... He's in your newspaper strip. He's on your radio. There's short cartoons in your theater. He's on clothing. You know, he's in the Macy's Day Parade as a balloon. He's at the World's Fair in costume. It's Superman Day at the World's Fair. It's a big deal. Everybody would have known Superman, from your grandmother right down to the immigrant who just got off of Ellis Island. Everybody would have known.
1: DC is quick to exploit the Superman formula. Editors send out a call to create a second costume superhero to match Superman's success. For the poor 18-year-old Jewish cartoonist from the Bronx named Bob Kane, this call does not go unnoticed. Here's Bob Kane.
9: And at DC Comics at that time, the
0: editor came over to me and he said, would you like to create another superhero in the genre of Superman? And let's see, I was making about $25 a week. And I said, how much does Siegel and sister who created Superman, make? Well, they make $800
3: a week apiece. I said, for that kind of money, you'll have a superhero on Monday. By Monday morning, you know, Kane comes back to his editor, Vince Sullivan, and says, here's what I got. And Vince Sullivan knew something good when he saw it. And he said, "See, I love
9: it. What do you call it? I said, that's a good question, Vince. <laughs> Maybe we'll call it the Bat-Hyphenated Man.
1: Less than a year after Superman's debut, DC introduce the Batman.
0: I wanted to be Bruce Wayne in my reverie. Instead of a poor kid, I imagined I'd like to be a rich playboy and fight
3: crime at night. I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the comic book characters that have ever been created by affluent, successful people. The characters of longevity always come from a place of oppression, always come from a a place of wanting to break out of the world that you're in.
1: Here's comic artist Erwin Haasen. We all were kids from the Bronx. We were all a bunch of schmucks and
6: being t- talking Jewish schmucks. We were innocent, talented guys. Who were schmucks? We never drew ourselves. Why? Why should we draw poor little guys? What would inspire us to draw poor little guys?
8: Comic books is an industry made up of people who aren't accepted, who desperately want to be accepted. So they desperately want to be like mainstream America. It's why Batman's a millionaire and Superman is a farmer, real mainstream, real, real, real America. So they imprint themselves on heroic images that embody all the stuff they wish they were rich, and handsome, and muscular, and able to handle any situation, and uh, not tongue-tied.
3: The public loved Batman. The public embraced Batman very quickly. Especially when you get into the fourth or fifth Batman adventure, and you start to outline his origins. The classic scene of young Bruce Wayne with his parents out behind a theater, and his parents are gunned down before his young eyes, and that's the moment that made him want to turn into Batman.
12: That's why Batman works so well. Whatever he does, you understand why he does it. He's lost his parents at a random crime in the city, and he wants to make sure that no one else suffers the same horror that he had to go through.
1: Batman's popularity soon rivals Superman's, and business at D.C. is booming.
7: Within two years, you had Superman, who was so powerful that he could move planets, and then you had Batman, who had no powers at all. He was the opposite. All the other characters fit in between these two characters. In
1: 1939, a young pulp magazine publisher named Martin Goodman launches an enduring enterprise called Marvel Comics. He puts the project under the editorial direction of his hard-working teenage nephew, Stanley Lieber, who writes comic books under the pseudonym of Stan Lee. Here's Stan Lee.
6: Comic books were not respected in those days. I thought someday I would be a writer and I would write books. And I didn't want to use my name on these comics, this name that would one day appear on the great American novel. So I just shortened my name, which had been Stanley Martin Lieber. I shortened the first name, Stanley, to Stan Lee, so that I could save my name for these great things I would later write.
1: A year after launching, Stan Lee creates Marvel's first star superhero, whose popularity comes to rival Superman himself. The ingeniously simple premise behind the red and gold costumed Captain Marvel was an orphan newsboy named Billy Batson who becomes the most powerful superhuman adult imaginable merely by speaking the magic word, SHAZAM. The letters stand for the seven immortal heroes, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. DC responds to Captain Marvel's popularity by suing Marvel for alleged copyright infringement of Superman. The legal battle drags on for 12 years until 1953, when inevitably DC's Man of Steel wins, as he always does. In 1939, the war in Europe has begun. Even though America isn't involved yet, many superheroes are. Months after the Hitler-Stalin Pact in February 1940, Superman decides to fly himself into enemy territory.
3: The moment you put him in Nazi Germany, you know, war is over. In fact, Look Magazine did a piece with Siegel and Schuster early on. The question was, how would Superman end the war? And the answer was, He flies over, he grabs Hitler by the scruff of the neck, he flies to Russia, grabs Stalin, takes them before the world court, and that's two pages, by the way. So Superman could have ended the war in apparently 14 panels of comics.
1: Superman's victory made it into the hands of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who denounces Superman as a Jew and mocks its creators as physically and intellectually circumcised. And when we come back, we continue this
0: remarkable American story. By the way, just to hear Stanley Lee talk about his own embarrassment, putting his actual real name, Stanley Lieber on these comic books because one day he was going to be the next Ernest Hemingway. Well, you don't hear Stan Lee saying that anymore or any of these guys in this area of work because this is literature and of the highest caliber and brand around the world. When we continue more on comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of comic book superheroes, the way it all began here in the United States. And by the way, if you like what you hear, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our podcast. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Let's get back to the story.
1: Nine months before the United States would officially enter World War II, two Jewish cartoonists create a character who is ready to take on the Nazis who bursts on the scene with an unforgettable cover. Here's Jim Steranko and comic historian Bradford Wright.
6: Captain America threw a smashing right cross to the jaw of Adolf Hitler. That
4: said everything about the character. They got hate mail for that. Uh, They got hate mail from
6: isolationists. Captain America exploded on the newsstand.
2: And sold out of his first issue.
1: In the spring of 1941, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby mix their patriotic super soldier with political prophecy when Captain America stops an unnamed Asian power from destroying the U.S. Pacific Fleet seven months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, in 1941, D.C. launches Wonder Woman, the statuesque Amazon wrapped in the American flag. Here's comic writer and editor Louise Simonson.
10: She's not an unreasonable icon to have been created. During World War II, women took over a lot of male roles. She's a Rosie the Riveter, only a goddess.
6: Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, A date which will live in infamy.
1: When the Japanese actually do cripple the Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor, the men in tights echo the nations. Batman delivers guns to the men on the front line, and Wonder Woman uses the heads of Hitler, Hirohito, and Mussolini as bowling pins. Here's comic creator Michael Chabon and Stan Lee. The superheroes went off to war with great gusto
5: week after week month after month just pounding the hell out of the nazis
6: the stories had so much pro-american propaganda that you'd almost think they were subsidized by the government but it was just We felt we had to do that.
5: And then something very interesting happened, which was that comic books were included in care packages that were sent to soldiers, along with chocolate and cigarettes, and comic books became part of the standard reading material for G.I. serving in the Second World War, and they liked them.
1: Many of the brightest talents in the comic industry join their superhero creations in the fight. Many enlist. Not all come back.
3: Bert Christmas was a young illustrator who with Garner Fox created Sandman, but his real love was flying, his real love was adventure, so he joined the Flying Tigers in World War II and, tragically, was shot down over Burma in the line of service.
1: Stan Lee also served.
6: I felt, I can't be writing about all these comic book heroes and not be fighting myself.
1: After victory in 1945, America welcomes home its real-life heroes. But the star-spangled morale boosters are no longer needed, nor wanted. Most get canceled by 1951, including Captain America. There are only three superheroes who are doing well, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. These three American icons carry the comic book industry on their backs. To unprecedented heights when sales reach $100 million a month in 1953. Most of this success is due to D.C. following their audience to a brand new medium, television.
6: Faster than a speeding bullet.
1: In the 1940s, Superman's mission is defined one way.
6: Superman fights a never-ending
4: battle for truth and justice. By the 1950s, and the, uh, the introduction of the Superman television show, of course, it became Truth,
11: Justice, and the American Way.
4: That phrase, the American Way, was all over the place in the 1950s, because now we're stuck in a Cold War. In
1: 1954, superheroes faced their greatest battle, not against a mad scientist or a foreign enemy, But against the United States Senate, both houses of the U.S. Senate hold hearings on the nefarious effects of comic books on young minds.
5: Comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency.
1: The hearings are a major blow for the comic book industry. Fearing the coercive effects of government censorship, and in an effort to survive, most of the comic book publishers form the Comics Code Authority, a self-governing organization that will police each issue and grant seals of approval.
11: At that time, the comic books were so attacked for the material that they were doing, or if that comic code emblem was not on the book, the book did not get distributed.
1: Just one year after the code's implementation, sales plunge by 75%.
6: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: In the 1960s, we're going to the moon. We're already in Vietnam. And because of the government's heavy hand, there are millions of kids who are unfamiliar with comic books. But on a golf course in New York, superhero history is about to change when the publisher of DC Comics, Jack Leibowitz, informs the publisher of Marvel Comics, Martin Goodman, that they are having great success with their latest comic, The Justice League, which combines the forces of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman to fight against the forces of evil. Marvel's publisher takes the DC success story to Stan Lee. Lee takes it to his wife. Here's Stan Lee.
6: I had been doing these comics for about 20 years or so, and I really had had it up to here. I felt I want to quit and try something else. I told my wife, so she said, you know, Stan, before you quit, why don't you do one book the way you'd like to do it? Something for people, hopefully, with a higher IQ. I came up with the Fantastic Four. They were trying to be the first people to reach the moon. I had them take a spaceship. The ship is belted by cosmic rays and they have to crash land. And because of the cosmic rays, each of them got a different power, incredible.
1: Inspired by the space race between the Americans and the Soviet Union, These will be the first superheroes invented out of the Atomic Age.
6: Mr. Fantastic would over-explain everything the way I tend to do. The Thing would say, will you shut up? We got it already! And, And he and the torch were always arguing and fighting.
5: The Thing hated being The Thing. And the idea of superheroes hating being a superhero was really a novelty and it produced a lot of psychological richness, at least comparatively speaking, uh, that had not been seen in comic books before. And so it was with the creation of the Fantastic Four that uh, comic books really uh, entered into the modern era.
1: Marvel's decision to cast outsiders as heroes continues when in 1962, Stan Lee unleashes another atomic-aged anti-hero, the Incredible Hulk.
6: I am the least scientific person you'll ever know, so I tried to seem scientific with our characters. I had the Hulk, and he was inundated by gamma rays. That's how he became the Hulk. Now, I wouldn't know a gamma ray if I saw it. I don't know what a gamma ray is, but if it sounds good, I'll use it.
0: And what an American voice. What an American story. The 20th century right into the 21st. Comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories. is our American stories and now for the final part of this great story about well American comic book superheroes and so much of it as we learned had to do with World War II and these giant villains on the world stage Hitler and Stalin and now we're moving along into the 60s and 70s and up to the present let's go and return back to where we last left off.
6: Marvel had suddenly emerged because Stan Lee created characters with an additional dimension to them that is superheroes with
2: problems
1: this gives stan lee an idea why not weave a new kind of tale a teenage superhero lee pitches the idea to his boss at marvel
6: you say that he's a teenager A hero can only be an adult. Teenagers are sidekicks. And you say you want them to have problems. Stan, don't you know what a hero is? It's interesting in the 1930s, uh, you had
4: the country seemingly falling apart, and yet you had these superheroes come in that were totally confident in their ability to resolve these problems. And then in the Kennedy years, the early 60s, things seemed to be fairly stable, and yet you had the Marvel superheroes come in who were Vulnerable and and confused and disoriented. The difference was the baby boomers. They were notoriously (laughs) self-absorbed. All this was magnified in in popular culture geared towards youth. James Dean, for example, you know, he may look tough on the outside, but his heart is breaking and he wants to be accepted and he's unsure and his parents don't understand him and the world doesn't understand him.
1: Peter Parker is a shy science student who lives with his aunt and uncle. He's bitten by a radioactive spider that gives him spider-like powers. Peter doesn't even consider fighting crime. He goes into show business. But when he fails to stop a thief who later murders his uncle, Peter Parker learns...
6: ...that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. What makes Spider-Man
0: such an enduring character isn't Spider-Man. It's Peter Parker. Clark Kent was in disguise. Peter Parker was a fact. He was a 98-pound weakling. His life sucked.
5: Even if you have the ability to, you know, swing from skyscrapers over the streets of New York, it doesn't help. That endures in the character Spider-Man to this day.
1: In spite of Stan Lee's pessimistic publisher, Spider-Man premieres in the summer of 1962 and goes on to become Marvel's greatest success, second only to DC's Superman. Put simply, story formulas that appeal to the widest audiences tend to proliferate and endure while those that do not, do neither. Comic books succeed or fail on the merits of their storytelling. But there is one issue that almost every American could rally around, the drug epidemic. In 1971, the Nixon administration reaches out to Stan Lee about doing a Spider-Man series on the dangers of drugs. Here's Stan Lee.
6: We sent that book to the Comic Code office as we were sending all the books, and they rejected the book. I said, why? They said, you're not allowed to mention drugs in the comics. I said, but we're not telling the kids to take drugs. It's an anti-drug message. Sorry. So I was so proud of my publisher. I told him about it, and I said, Martin, I think we ought to put the book out without the seal of approval. He said, do it, Stan. We got more mail from teachers and parents and doctors and everybody all over the country saying how much they loved that book and how delighted they were. Within a week,
7: they had a new meeting of the Comics Code Authority, which was all the publishers, the self-regulating agency, and they rewrote the Comics Code. They rewrote it to such an extent that it's
1: gone. When it comes to the first superhero, Superman's durability is proven once again, this time on the big screen, and stars the 25-year-old Juilliard graduate Christopher Reeve. Here's Christopher Reeve.
2: What sets Superman apart is that he has the wisdom to use his power for good. He's got the kind of maturity, or he's got the innocence, really, to look at the world very, very simply. And that's what makes him so different. When he says, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way, everybody goes, (laughs) you know, but he's not kidding. It was
3: just so perfectly cast. Christopher Reeve is Superman. Nobody else can touch the hem of that cape.
7: It's all right, nothing to get worried
3: about. Here is a character in a world where I didn't feel like I was being paid attention to in a world where I didn't feel like I mattered. Here is somebody who cares about everybody. Whether you're rich or poor or black or white, Superman cares about everybody.
1: And just in case it ever comes up in trivia, the first words uttered to the courteous cape Crusader come from a star-struck pimp who sounds like Ric Flair. Hey, Jim, Excuse me. That's a bad outfit! The 1978 Superman Motion Picture is one of the biggest moneymakers in Warner Brothers' film history to date. The movie is nominated for three Academy Awards, and a new wave of Supermania hits in the wake of the film's success, a wave that rolls into three
2: sequels. I you
1: In the closing years of the Cold War, inflation is high and President Jimmy Carter is diagnosing Americans as having "a crisis of confidence.
5: We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose
6: for our nation.
1: The comic book industry sees a desperate need for strength, confidence, and the courage to use force in the face of evil. Writer-artist Frank Miller gets his big break in 1979 when at the age of 22, when he revives a 1970s vigilante called the Punisher. And actually kills people.
4: In the 1970s, there was a growing backlash against crime waves, against what some considered the permissiveness uh, that had crept into American society in the 60s and 70s. And this backlash found reflection in some popular vigilante anti-heroes. In Hollywood, for example, you had the Dirty Harry films. Uh-uh. You could ask yourself questions.
5: Do I feel lucky?
4: Well, do you, punk? In comic books, you had a character like the Punisher. The Punisher was a Vietnam veteran who returned home to find his family murdered uh, in a a gangland killing. Uh, He undertook a one-man war against crime, saying that justice, you know, had failed to punish the guilty. So he's gonna exact justice himself.
1: Readers love The Punisher, and Marvel meets their demand. There
6: are cities in Michigan.
1: Oh, shut up. Here again is comic book historian Bradford Wright.
8: People voted
4: for Reagan because he kicked butt, because he came on as a tough guy. And I think that attitude was mirrored in superheroes of the 80s. It's not to say the people who wrote The Punisher believed that, but I think they did tap into a popular mood.
1: In the 1990s, the comic book industry make another attempt to captivate readers. Sex, cynicism, and violence reach a level of occurrence never seen before. By 1993, thousands of comic book stores close. Hundreds of creators lose their jobs. And by 1996, Marvel files for bankruptcy. Monthly sales fall from 38 million to 7 million. Here's comic writer Marv Wolfman and Dwayne McDuffie.
2: They got darker and darker and darker, and they forgot the core of what most of these superhero comics are, which is about triumphing over
8: adversity. The only way you could tell the villains from the heroes was by whose logo was on the cover. I mean, their behavior was evil, not morally ambiguous. These guys were just flat out, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. He's a guard.
1: The call to action against the dark moral ambiguity will overtake not just the comic book universe, but the real world, one September morning. Here's the CEO of Marvel Comics, Avi Arad.
5: This picture of Spider-Man looking at ground zero, it's compelling, it's emotional. He represents all of us.
1: DC echoes Marvel's sentiment with Superman's response while he gazes at a giant collage of the fallen 9-11 heroes. The one-word bubble reads, Wow. Superheroes endure because they represent basic American beliefs, that there are choices to make between good and evil, that individuals can triumph over adversity.
2: The ones that work are archetypes, made by people who believed and cared. Batman will still be around in a hundred years' time. Comic book writers and artists are doing the same thing that storytellers did, drawing the pictures on the caves at Lesko.
3: We're using story to create context for life. Superheroes have always flourished in times of the greatest American adversity. In the Depression era, we were afraid of whether or not we would be able to put food on the table. We were afraid of being involved in a great world war that would take our freedom away. In the atomic age, we were afraid of radiation. Today, we're afraid of terrorist attacks. And in all of those eras of history, that's when superheroes have enjoyed their greatest resurgence. They're our mythology. They're our heroes. We need ideals to look up to. And, you know,
12: they're not going to let us down. Superman's not going to let us down. Superman's always going to be there.
1: To people all over the world, superheroes embody the values, hopes, and dreams of the greatest nation on the planet. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American story. And if you like what you
0: heard, go to ouramericannetwork.org. There's so much more, hundreds of hours of podcasts, free for all to hear. This is Our American Stories. Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. thats following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two and a half year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 25th feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago.
12: The cold of the winter had passed. The ice of the Missouri had thawed. Peace had been forged with the Mandan Indians. After a winter that paused their progress for over four months, the Corps of Discovery could finally resume their trudging to the Pacific Ocean, hoping to at least resume their progress of 14 miles a day on average only. It could get better, or it could get worse. But before they pushed off, just the same as we do today, before a vacation, they had to finish off some dull duties. Here's William Clark.
11: April the 3rd, Thursday, 1805. A white frost this morning, some ice on the edge of the water. Mr. McKenzie, clerk to the Northwest Company,
12: British Traders,
11: visits us. Mr. McKenzie wishes to get pay for his horse, lost in our service this winter, one which was robbed by the Teton Indians. We shall pay this man for his horse.
12: But to be sure, there were more interesting duties, such as preparing to send back east their ginormous watercraft, the keelboat.
9: They didn't know what country they were coming into, but they knew that all rivers eventually shallow out.
12: And that there was no way that this puppy that carried the same load as two semi-trucks was gonna get through, or get over the Rocky Mountains for that matter. So says our resident Lewis and Clark expert clay jenkinson and if it was going to go back led by a few men that their court marshals decided to kick off the expedition it might as well carry back evidence that the rest of them have had some relevance
11: we are all day engaged packing up articles to be sent to the president of the united states Box number one contains the following articles. In package number three and four, male and female antelope, with their skeletons. Package number seven and nine, some of the aricorous tobacco seed. Mmm, that's good. The large trunk contains male and female prairie dogs.
12: Live prairie dogs sent to the president in a trunk? Would it make it there alive? Oh, we'll see. Anyways, these are just a few of the items for box number one and trunk number two. In all, there were four boxes, two trunks, and three cages.
9: That's an enormous amount of work. They had to create packing cases for all of this. They had to have labels. This is the Enlightenment, so everything had to have a full description of where it was obtained, from whom, under what circumstances.
12: And the possible circumstance that really led them to go to these lengths was their own death. If they suddenly died in the days ahead, all of their documentation would likely be suddenly lost, making their efforts for naught, so they also sent to Jefferson as many documents as they could, which came to be known as
9: the Mandan Miscellany, and it becomes the nation's first report of what's happening on the Lewis and Clark expedition.
12: Clark sends descriptions of 72 different Indian tribes.
11: We are writing and preparing dispatches all day.
12: He sends a map of their nation west of the Mississippi, as best as he could guess it from their experience and the collective experience of the Indians' maps.
9: And these maps were drawn by Native Americans for Lewis and Clark at their request, sometimes drawn in the snow, sometimes with sticks and piles of mud, sometimes with charcoal on parchment or leather, sometimes even on paper.
12: And Clark sends a shot across the bow to a foreign
11: competitor for American land. I have never heard of any treaty having been entered into between Spain and the Indians for a boundary or lands. And I believe that nation are usurpers on the Missouri and high up the Mississippi.
2: Whoa,
12: take it easy there, Clarky boy.
9: The Spanish were extremely protective of what's now Texas, and hostile to any pretensions that the Americans had that the Louisiana Treaty essentially gave us all of Texas.
11: Wrote until very late at night, but little time to devote to my friends.
12: Clark's likely saying that the work got in the way of the work of friendship he hasn't even had the option of communicating with his friends back home in 11 months. And now, it would be for many more months. Clark and Lewis did send one document together, an outline of the number of military officers needed and where to, quote, protect the Indian trade and keep the savages in peace with the U.S. and each other
9: when you read this, it's startling because, of course, the cliché about Lewis and Clark is that they were peaceful and that they got along famously with most of the native peoples that they met. And all of that is partly true. But then out of this expedition pops this document, which is very stark.
12: Their estimate was that it would require just 700 men to secure the West. Mm
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with our 25th feature, the most epic road trip ever, the Korra Discovery, Lewis and Clark's Miraculous Expedition. And we're tracking it. Well, the work those guys did for this great country 200 years ago. More after these messages. return to our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever, and after a long pause in North Dakota, the guys are preparing to resume their trudging to the Pacific Ocean, and those preparation included sending President Thomas Jefferson all of the documentation that they could from their journey so far.
12: Lewis put forth a long geographical treatise of the Missouri River and an equally long treatise on botany. A list of specimens of plants collected by me on the Mississippi and Missouri rivers contains such observations on the vegetable kingdom spread to our view in this rich country as they have occurred to my mind. Number one. Species of Chris, an herb of the cabbage family. He got it up appeared. to number to to 107. To to 107. And as the captain, Lewis made the executive decision to send Jefferson all of Clark's journals
9: to date. By the way, not to digress, but in that same moment when Lewis is writing to Jefferson saying, I'm sending you Clark's journal, it's kind of a wreck.
12: He's not a great writer like us.
9: But you'll get somebody to clean it up. He then says, and by the way, I'm not sending you my journal. Uh, I'll be sending you my journal. I'll probably send it from the Great Falls or somewhere down the line when I have some leisure to finish it. But I've been too busy with all of the many, many complications and details of the voyage to to put it in the form that I want to put it in but but it'll be coming sometime uh, later this spring or summer well he was maybe saying what he thought was true but it never happened I don't think there was a journal I think this is Lewis telling Jefferson this is like every writer promising that it's almost finished it's just a couple more days I'm well into it don't worry as far as we know Lewis had not kept a journal He certainly had not kept more than the most cursory field notes. He hadn't written one up at Fort Mandan. He was essentially lying to Jefferson to say, you know, it's just not quite ready yet, but I'll be sending it here in a few weeks. Where is he going to send it from? I guess from the Great Falls, because at that point he expected to send a boat back with some specimens and some men. But he's making excuses for himself, and Lewis's excuses will just grow more grave and more portentous over time.
12: To cut Lewis some slack, he did write something in his journal on the momentous day of their departure, unlike so much of the time before.
9: The first year of travel from St. Louis to what's now the middle of North Dakota was for Lewis less interesting, even tedious in some respects, because he wasn't discovering anything. Others had been that far up the river. Others had come from St. Louis to the Mandan villages, and others had come from what's now the Winnipeg-Manitoba area down overland to the Mandan and Hidatsa villages. And so Lewis was certain that this was country that had been mapped, Uh, the rivers had been named, the prominent landmarks had been visited, the natives had had been incorporated in some way into a a European view of things, there were trade networks already established, etc., and so Lewis thinks of himself as an explorer in the vein of Columbus or Captain Cook, and he regarded that first year of travel as, as a kind of a shakedown cruise. It's like Cook's voyage to Tahiti, from Britain to Tahiti, was just the setup. And once he got to Tahiti, that's where the, the action began during the transit of Venus and then the great discoveries that Cook made in the deep Pacific, And so Lewis sees this in in much the same way. But when they leave Fort Mandan, now they're entering what Lewis considers terra incognita. Unknown land. And he can prove it. The best maps of, of North America at this time peter out just west of the Mandan and Hidatsa villages and the landscape between them and about 100 miles inland from Astoria, from the Pacific coast was blank, was literally blank on the best maps that the world could produce and often labeled Terra Incognita. So now Lewis comes alive. He has essentially been silent through most of the first year of travel. Now he comes alive as a journal keeper because he's now actually behaving as an explorer with a capital E. And he is filled with a sense of possibility and a sense of his destiny as possibly one of the great explorers in modern history. And so he writes out this amazing journal entry. Now before I recite it, I just want to say that it's quite possible that he did not write it at the time. In fact, it's almost certain that he didn't write it at the time. Uh, It doesn't have a, a dear diary sort of feel to it. It looks to me like it was written later in some moment of leisure from notes from that day and that then he is essentially long after the fact writing a more heroic, more polished version of what he felt on that occasion. But however, it was written and under whatever circumstances, it reflects the enormous pride that Lewis felt and the sense of sheer excitement because he believed that he and his company were now about to walk off the map of the known world So just think about that. None of us gets to do this. Uh, Out in the Great Plains of Montana, I can walk in places where few humans have ever been. But we can never walk off the map of the known world. That era is over. And so we can't really understand the sheer excitement that Lewis must have felt on this occasion. And it's important for us to try to put ourselves into that, that sense of destiny and possibility and anticipation maybe a little fear but the kind of exhilaration that comes for someone whose life project is now finding the traction that he has always wanted for it and so he says our vessels consisted of six small canoes and two large pirogues this little fleet although perhaps not quite so respectable as those of columbus or captain cook were still viewed by us with as much pleasure as those deservedly famed adventurers ever beheld theirs, and I dare say, with as much anxiety for their safety and preservation. We were now about to penetrate a country at least two thousand miles in width, upon which the foot of civilized man has never trodden. The good or evil it has in store for us is for experiment to determine. And this little fleet contains every article by which we are to expect to subsist or defend ourselves, entertaining as I do. The most confident hope of succeeding in a voyage which has formed a darling project of mine for the last ten years, I could not but look upon this moment as amongst the most happy of my life. The men are in excellent health and spirits, zealously attached to the enterprise, and eager. To proceed, not a murmur or whisper of discontentment is to be heard among them, but all act in unison and with the most perfect harmony. I took an early supper this evening and went to bed. It, It just doesn't get any better than that. This is one of the great passages in the history of exploration. You can put it in the same category of things that Columbus wrote in his letters or that Captain Cook wrote in his journal or that occurred uh, in explorations of the sea or in the, in the American space program. There's almost nothing like it. I always like to say that Lewis was inconstant. He was not a reliable record keeper. He went silent for periods of time. His silences are inexplicable and irresponsible. He was a man of mood. He may have been a manic depressive, but for some reason or other, there were times when he just couldn't bring himself to keep adequate records. But when the switch is on, when Lewis's switch is on, there is nobody like him.
0: And my goodness, the switch was on. What writing. And what a picture we get in our heads of this unknown land, this unmapped land. No wonder he came alive. He was bored up until then. And a lot of the guys probably were, too, because they were pioneers in the truest sense of the word. Not how we sort of toss that word around today. And as always, thanks to our Lewis and Clark expert, Clay Jenkinson. What a job he's doing for us and for you. And you can learn more about Clay and his work at clayjenkinson.com. He's the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, We Proceeded On. And he's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes... Jefferson deserves it. This is Our American Story, our Lewis and Clark series, the most epic road trip ever. This has been our 25th feature on the two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West, Lewis and Clark and his band of brothers, the Core of Discovery. Their story here on Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories from all walks of life. And some of these stories are fun, some of these stories are uplifting, and some are tough. And today we continue our series on just such a topic, a tough one. We're digging down deep into the opioid epidemic. It's our American Carnage series. We've heard so much about this scourge, but for many, it still seems like something that happens in the news to other people's families. But in fact, drug overdoses are killing more Americans under 50 than anything else. Some 64,000 Americans died of drug overdoses in 2016, and 20,000 of those came from drugs like fentanyl. That fentanyl number was just 3,000 deaths only three years ago, a spike, an increase of over 540% in three years. Today we'll hear from Carrie Luther a mother of four who lost her 29-year-old son, Tosh, to fentanyl overdose in 2015. Tosh was not trying to kill himself. He wasn't even trying to get high. He was just trying to get some sleep while suffering from itchy hives. But before we get to that tragedy and Carrie's message to other families, let's hear a little about young Tosh and the rest of this family.
10: Tosh became interested in sports at a young age. He joined a local judo club, and was small for his age, but was very quick. He became a purple belt when he was 9 or 10 years old. He left judo primarily because he became interested in baseball, Uh, went into Little League, and became just a very, very good third baseman because of his quickness and a good batter and went on to make the all-star team. And we moved to the Aptos area of California, and he went to the junior high school there and was a very good student, continued his love for baseball, and then went into high school and was the most valuable player of his uh, sophomore year in high school. And then his senior year, he was awarded the most valuable defensive player award and he was always a very good student. When he was in his early teens I was involved in going to church. And then over time I joined a church that I'd gone to when I was a teenager. It's a small country church. Um, I sing in the choir, I sing on the praise team, I have had small group studies at my house. My kids have all been embraced by those communities And both the boys got involved in playing on the basketball league. And so they played in this church basketball league for several years and got, you know, just built relationships with people there. And we had long conversations, you know, about what they believed about God and what I believed about God. And um, so they grew up in a home where they knew about God.
0: Sports, school, church. Sounds like the great American family, right? Tosh had great times with his parents, his siblings, and his friends.
10: We just had a really good time playing together and he would go with me because I'm a celestial nut. I love meteor showers and he would uh, humor me and go on treks out into the middle of nowhere in the dark in the middle of the night to watch the meteor showers and He had a group of friends that he'd grown up with that just were his buddies, and they often came over to our house for barbecues. We would all play games together and play horseshoes and darts. And um, He and his little brother, who was seven years his junior, they and some of his friends would have these crazy games of wiffle ball. And even when they were, you know, in their adult years, <laughs> it was pretty funny to watch them out running around and trying to hit home run derbies and so forth. But he was just like that. And of course, you know, he wasn't he wasn't a saint um, either. He was a normal kid, and he'd get aggravated and lose his temper just like anybody. I'm not going to pretend that he was perfect for sure, but he was a really good guy.
0: As he became an adult, Tosh brought that same really good guy energy to his job.
10: He became an employee of a local grocery store and grew in the organization. His coworkers loved him and he was loved by his customers. They would make a point just to stop by and chat with him because he would talk to them and look at them in the eye like they were the most important thing in the world to him at that moment. And so he developed a lot of very close friendships with his customers over the years.
0: Tosh enjoyed spending time with his colleagues and customers, but he also had dreams beyond his day job.
10: He liked to write lyrics to hip-hop songs, and he was very talented. He had wanted to actually go into sports journalism just because his writing was so powerful. And so his writing lyrics was really a special thing that we actually learned more about upon his death because we found a book of his writings in his room. And um, we took one of those, and actually it's, it's painted now on the side of his dad's skate shop in Santa Cruz. And people come by and see this beautiful mural that the graffiti artists uh, that know his dad painted on the wall to honor him.
0: But as Carrie has already said, Tosh was not perfect, and their family wasn't either. And who among us is? When Tosh was two, his parents divorced. Though Carrie and Tosh's dad are friendly and close to this day, she knows that divorce is as hard for kids as it is for the grown-ups.
10: I had to ask my children for forgiveness because of what I put them through in that process is that there's a void there, and they are. They're getting shuffled back and forth, and, you know, my attention wasn't always on them, ne- getting, giving them what they needed. And so, yeah, I'm sure there was a void there that he was trying to fill and escape from somehow during his teenage years. Those are the toughest years anyway.
0: And so, starting in those years, Tash started experimenting with alcohol and marijuana. But as he grew out of those, he and his friends took up cocaine.
10: It made him not feel his problems, you know, when he was using he would forget about that he felt maybe stuck in his job and wanted more. You know, didn't know where he was going to go next in life and wanted more. And so it was a struggle. His, uh, one of his friends always had it. And he would, you know, try to go over there just to be with his friends without doing it. And that was impossible.
0: Tosh was always both thoughtful and transparent with his family. So it's no surprise that he went to his mom when he wanted to stop using cocaine
10: just six or seven months before his death he came to me and shared with me that he was struggling and wanted help and could i help him find that help and so i did i knew someone who was a drug abuse counselor and they referred me to someone else and he started seeing them and was working on um, changing that lifestyle wanting more in his life he was telling his friends look guys we're going to be 30. We got to we got to stop this. Uh, uh, it's not going to be like a light switch that goes on that just says, "Okay, we're ready now." We have to decide to grow up. So he was trying to make those changes and we often talk about how could he, you know, make new friends so that he wasn't confronted with those things whenever they hang out together. And uh, it was difficult being a late 20s and not knowing how to make new friends at this stage of life. It was a challenge for him, even though he wanted it badly, and he continued to go to counseling. He was going to drug abuse counseling to deal with the issues that were causing him to want to do drugs. And he wasn't not taking responsibility for that. He wasn't saying, oh, it's because of this, you know, it's not my fault. It's because of this, this, and this, that I want to use drugs. He knew it was within him.
0: And again, that's Carrie Luther talking about her son, Tosh, who died of an overdose from illegal fentanyl. And we're bringing you these stories, the epidemic that's ravaging the country. It's an American carnage. Several experts have used that term. And when this many people die from an illicit drug, we've got to bring it to your attention. We've got to tell the stories. When we come back, Tosh's story, Carrie's story, so many American families' stories. Here, on our American Stories. And we continue with Carrie Luther and her son Tosh. And quitting cocaine was no easy feat for this young man. But ultimately, it wasn't this drug that took his life. Here's Carrie on a few seemingly normal days that led to the greatest shock of her life.
10: It was a Sunday, and he came by my house after work. Just to say hi, because I live near where he worked. And, you know, as young adults will often do with their parents, he came in the house and said, Hey, Mom, what you doing for dinner? (laughs) So I just said, Well, I don't have a plan, because I actually have a meeting at church tonight. And I think the World Series was on. So I said, Why don't I order you and your brother some pizza before I go? And I can pay for it on my way out. And they'll just deliver it. And he was, oh, no, you don't have to go to that trouble. And I said, oh, it's no trouble at all. Uh, Colton has to eat, too, and you guys can watch the game together. I would love to do that. And we talked a little bit about, you know, how things were going with his girlfriend and how work was going. And and uh, when I left, he said, I love you. And I told him I love him. And then I went off to my meeting. And then the next morning, I left for... Uh, staff retreat. I I was on the executive team where I work and I was there overnight and uh, came back the next day around 1, 2 o'clock and I was in the area of my granddaughter's elementary school and so I offered to pick her up for my daughter and take her home and I did that and got to visit with her for a little bit and brought her home and then went back to my house and was working on my budget for uh, the following year, and um, I got a phone call, and uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Tosh's oldest sister, um, was calling me saying that her dad, Tosh's dad, was trying to get a hold of me and that he'd gotten a call from the sheriff's department that Tosh was dead.
0: You can't even imagine. Well, Carrie, Mom... She raced to her son's home.
10: The sheriff's deputy that was up there wouldn't let us go in to see him when we got there until the coroner came in to do their little, just an investigation. He came up and, you know, looked for what he needed to find, and all he found was blister packets and this little pouch with a Motrin bottle in it. And they took Tasha's phone, of course, to see if they could find anything. And they weren't really sure. It appeared to be an overdose, but they couldn't find anything in his room to suggest what it was. So I never did get to see Tosh before they took him away. His girlfriend, Zoe, who was just devastated, of course, told me that I shouldn't, that it didn't look like him, and uh, that I should remember him the way I remember him alive. And so I didn't go see him. And um, they took him away. And then and then, over the course of the next couple days, of course, they had t- done an autopsy and a toxicology report. And um, I got a call the day we were planning his services, which was uh, about nine days later. And it was the coroner, and he said that as a result of doing that tox report, that he had 14 nanograms of fentanyl in his system and that they had found three-quarters of a Xanax in this Motrin bottle they'd found in his room and that the FDA had taken it and tested it and that it was fentanyl and not Xanax. And it looked exactly like a Xanax.
0: Tosh died from taking one quarter of one single counterfeit pill, illegal fentanyl masquerading as prescription Xanax. Carrie soon pieced together how her son unintentionally overdosed on this deadly fentanyl after speaking with Tosh's doctor, his girlfriend, and law enforcement.
10: He had had a case of hives for about six weeks prior to this. He had planned to go that day, actually, to get blood work done to find out what was causing his hives, and they were itching him terribly, and he was taking Benadryl at the direction of his doctor, but they were still itching. She said he called because he couldn't sleep because of the itching was so bad, and talked for about an hour longer, and they agreed, when they hung up, that he would call by 11 o'clock the next morning because they both had the day off, And they would go do something together, and um, she didn't hear from him by 11 o'clock, or even 11.30, and so she started calling him, and he didn't answer. And she called for another hour or so and decided, you know, this isn't like Tosh. I'm going to go see if he's okay. Um, But she got up there, and his car was in the driveway, and she could see from outside his bedroom window that he was in bed. She couldn't get in at first and she was able to jiggle the lock and get inside and uh, went over to him and put her hand on his shoulder and he was cool to the touch and she rolled him over and he had vomited um, onto his pillow and she saw that his lips were blue and so she called 911 immediately and they told her to lay him on the ground and um, start CPR until they got there and that was Probably about 15-20 minutes, because it's a very narrow road to get up there, and with a fire engine, that's not easy to do. So they got up there and took over, and they did everything they could, but it was way too late. He'd been gone for hours. The equivalent of two grains of table salt is enough to kill a person of fentanyl. And that's how my son died, and, you know, he, he didn't plan to die that night. He just wanted to sleep. And if it had been Xanax, he'd be here today. And, um, and now it's an epidemic um, nationwide. I don't know about the world, but I know in the United States, you know, that these people are manufacturing these fake drugs to look like Oxycontin or Xanax, and I don't even know what else. And they're using pill presses to make these fake medicines, and people are taking them not knowing that they're taking fentanyl, which what I've learned is a a hundred times stronger than morphine or heroin, and it just shuts down the central nervous system. And Tasha's doctor, with whom he was treating for the hives, told me that he essentially just stopped breathing and went to sleep and never woke up.
0: Wow, what words. He didn't plan on dying that night. He planned to sleep. This terrible loss, by the way, was in 2015, but Carrie is still hard at work telling her son's story to try and help others.
10: I spoke at a local high school to a thousand students to tell them, you know, he was just like you. He was an athlete. He was a good student. He loved music. He loved the Giants. He loved the Raiders. He loved his family, and he didn't plan to die that night. You know, he didn't know what he was taking, and neither can you. You think you can trust people, but you can't know where that came from, and so you don't want to be that person that's lying in a casket, and your family and your friends are looking at you saying goodbye. You have to Just say no and help each other say no because you can't know what you're taking. And then I spoke to probably 40 or 50 parents and I told them Tasha's story and I said, you need your kids to know this. Tell them my son's story and tell them that you don't want to lose them to something so senseless because there's people out there that don't care. They just want to make money and they will do whatever they can to make money off of off of your children. Tell your kids this story. They need to know it. And that it isn't worth it. You know, they're going to they have a very full life ahead of them and they are loved. Tell them how much they are loved because we didn't even know how much my son was loved until he died and we had 400 people come to his service. And that's not the way I want to honor my son, but now I have no choice please you know don't don't take anything you don't get from your doctor i didn't know he had done that so many people take these pills that they're getting online and those aren't even safe in many cases the only thing i have control over is to tell my son's story to try to make a difference and so that's my hope is that people will hear his story and it'll save a life, and maybe, <laughs> I hope it saves lots of lives. But I miss him every day. I miss him every day, especially around the holidays. It's the hardest. You know, it's just not the same. I have three other children and my grandchildren who I adore, but it's not the same without him.
0: And those are tough, tough words to hear. And thank you so much, Carrie, for sharing your son's story, your story. And folks, this is something we got to educate our kids on. That supply chain of where they get their drugs, we've got to know where they're coming from. We've got to let our kids know if it doesn't come from your doctor or a close supply chain, don't, don't take the drug. And this is Our American Stories Carrie Luther's story, her son Tasha's, and so many tens of thousands of Americans suffering from this opioid epidemic in this country, from illegal opioids. This is Our American Stories.